Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the writing of Isaiah. Isaiah 43.2 states, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. When you're in over your head, I will be there for you. And when you're in rougher waters, you will not go down. When you're a rock and a hard place, it won't be the dead end. My guest today is Kenton Johnson, man of the cloth. And I mean that figuratively and literally, as he is a chaplain who wears a few different uniforms. Kenton is a chaplain for Clackamas County Fire District 1, a chaplain for Clackamas County Department of Communications, 911 dispatchers and staff, a disaster relief chaplain for search and rescue, as well as for TIP, which stands for Trauma Intervention Program, the specially trained citizen volunteers who respond to traumatic incidents to support victims and their families in the first few hours following a tragedy. Kenton, you minister to the emotional, the spiritual, and the mental health needs for so many employees volunteers, and as well as the communities they serve. Where do you find the ability to communicate respectfully across cultures with persons of different faiths and also those with no faith affiliation? Elizabeth, that's a great question. First, let me just say thank you for uh, for having me here. I'm honored uh, to do that. So <clears throat> what... Uh, when I'm dealing with somebody who I don't know what their faith is, and you really don't usually know who that is, unless you know the person ahead of time. Uh, but let's say you're at their home. You look for signs of their faith. So that could be pictures on the wall. You know, there's certain kind of traditional pictures that you see maybe or, or icons, uh, things that you see that you go, mm, I'm pretty sure this person probably uh, maybe is Catholic. Maybe it's a picture of a saint. And you can't just assume that it's Catholicism if you see something like that. But it might be some uh, LD, uh, LDS uh, paintings that you just kind of recognize. And uh, if you see a Book of Mormon, if you see a Bible, if you see a Billy Graham book on the table or a lot of things that are uh, uh, written by uh, maybe evangelical authors, you kind of get a feel for what kind of spiritual background does this person have that might play into what you're about to do. You don't make assumptions, though. So you can look for those various kinds of signs, and it may be jewelry. Maybe they've got a cross on a uh, on a necklace. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're Christian. doesn't necessarily mean that they're Catholic. It just means they have a cross. But if you find all these other pieces together, you kind of try to get a feel of where they are. And then you look for the appropriate moment when they might bring up faith or when you have the opportunity to ask them, What's their faith community like, and how does that maybe going to help them? But don't make assumptions. So you try to find out how their faith system can support them, and you you begin to connect them to that support system. Even if their faith doesn't match my faith, um, I found that uh, I can minister to a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ uh, by sometimes connecting them 
with somebody from a very different faith. And that at first feels weird to me as a believer, but I realize that they can't even think about spiritual terms until they get some of the, the, the core basic needs of safety, uh, life, food, um, health, warmth, those kind of things taken care of. Maslow's pyramid that says these basic things have to be taken care of before you can really work on the faith thing. And for some, that's just going to be being around their friends who are of a faith that's different from mine. So uh, as far as the no faith affiliation, I'm glad you asked no faith affiliation because there's very few people who don't have a faith. It's putting the finger on what is that faith that's tricky for a lot of people. And I would say especially here in the Northwest, uh, a lot of people who don't go to any kind of a church or temple, mosque, or any other uh, synagogue. Um, but how do you find what works to give them some some spiritual strength. So you're saying that while you're bound in religious tradition, you serve as basically a non-denominational and non-secretarian in your chaplaincy. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. So you're basically, by being a fire chaplain, you're not a preacher, an evangelist, so you're just there to be, to listen, to love, to help. In, in most of those roles, there are times when you're asked to do something in the roles of fire chaplain. It, it might be officiating at a, uh, at a memorial service, for instance, and they want you there specifically because your faith matches up with theirs. If that's the case, if I have a, a firefighter family or a, uh, a search and rescue family or something like that, somebody in the community who knows that I'm a fire chaplain, but their faith is pretty comparable to what mine is, I can step into that role that is more in the traditional role for ministers uh, in in my same uh, line of faith. So I can help bring strength to them by doing that. I can't pretend to be, for instance, a rabbi. That's not going to work. It's not being honest. So I'm not going to pretend to do something in another tradition. But if the need is there for something inside of my own tradition, in my own background, then I can be very fluid in that, and that brings more comfort and more help to that family. So is there a specialized training that one doesn't get in the theological seminaries and religious schools? <laughs> yeah. So there's this place called School of Hard Knocks, and I don't remember where you apply for that, but mm. uh, uh, they, they tend to accept anybody who right. <laughs> fills in. out the application, right? No, there are. There's, some, definitely set, there's certainly some, some training outside of what you would get at a seminary or a Bible school or some other religious school. So I do have some of that in my... my uh, a uh, bachelor's degree included a degree in religion. Uh, I spent some time in seminary. Um, but the things that we do in chaplaincy often are outside of what are taught in those classrooms. Now, there are some good training for chaplains. There's good training for people who want to do that kind of a thing, ministering in that kind of a role. In fact, you'd mentioned the trauma intervention program. One of the first trainings, not the first, but one of the first trainings I got in how to take people through really the initial moments of some terrible grief that they're going through um, was through the the Academy for the Trauma Intervention Program. And I'm so grateful for them. They just do tremendous work. And and uh, and we work well as chaplains and uh, TIP volunteers together. Uh, but their training is, is just really awesome training. It's about a two-week training program, evenings and some weekends. And um, I've taken some, I've gone to a chaplain academy to get some uh, further training. A lot of chaplains don't have necessarily the opportunity to do that, and so some of it is learning on the job, but some of that doesn't always work out well. You can learn bad things as well as you can learn good things sometimes uh, by doing it that way. Yeah, there's some other, there's some other training. How do you help people through those really traumatic moments? And, uh, and that's a tough thing to do in a classroom. 
I've been mentored to, I should say. I'm really blessed to have been mentored by some incredible chaplains, and that has been probably a bigger help for me in a lot of ways than even what I get in classrooms or combined with it anyway. How do you help a suicidal person? If you encounter, mm. some, and encounter somebody that way, I can't imagine that I guess that is just comes intuitively with your spirit? Mm, no, maybe, maybe to some degree, but there is specialized training uh, for suicide. I, I've been blessed again to do some, uh, some really be able to participate in some really good training, uh, critical incident stress management um, training for suicide of prevention, post-vention, so how do, you, how do you deal with the loved ones that are left behind, and intervention. Um, I've, uh, Lines for Life is another incredible uh, training here in Portland area. Lines for Life, and most major cities are going to have something like that hmm. where you can go take training from them, even if you don't end up being on the, uh, the, the telephone uh, side of things for them. You can go to their training to help you with uh, suicide prevention specifically on that usually and kind of detect the signs and then there's an online course uh, that I took that anybody can take it's called QPR uh, and so it's like CPR but with a Q for a question and uh, that's uh, some online education all those hit on some of the major things but basically in my role as a chaplain it's very infrequent uh, I found it's very infrequent for most chaplains to actually be in the presence of somebody who's suicidal no it can happen but it can happen to any of us in any of our jobs, for that matter, uh, or, or in our relationships with people in our community. So um, I would say first kind of get to know what are some of the signs. You can't always tell. You can have a person who's suicidal that you just never pick up on anything. That happens. Probably most of us have gone through that where we go, wow, I didn't think he would do that. I didn't think she was capable of that. I didn't think things were that bad in this person's life. So it is intentionally trying to build relationships with people so you can tell when things are a little bit off in their life. Um, but in, in my role as a chaplain, I have never had to be somewhere or never had the privilege, however you want to look at that, at being somewhere where I needed to intervene immediately in somebody's life. Oftentimes, firefighters and police officers, if they sense something like that is going on, they know that I might be in danger as well. If, let's say, the person has a gun or, or a knife, they're not going to let me typically get close to them. So some chaplains do that. And uh, um, fortunately, that has not, that's selfish for me to say fortunately. <laughs> uh, for my own well-being, that isn't something that I've uh, been in the role for yet. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. So years back, during Christmas time, it was a just quiet, average Monday night, and all of a sudden the TVs were ablaze with the fact there was an active shooter inside our local mall here, mm -hmm. um, outside the Portland area. Mm -hmm. What would your role as a chaplain do there for that? So uh, for that particular, uh, in that particular instance, uh, I remember driving home from work. I have a regular, you know, eight to five job uh, as well. And I remember driving home and listening to that uh, on the radio. And then I flipped over to the scanner to kind of listen in. I heard the voice of a dispatcher that I recognized the voice of. Uh, I wore a couple different hats in that. It was not with my fire uh, district uh, that I played a role in that, although our fire district was certainly very involved with that. Um, so for me, part of that was taking care of my dispatchers. 
the dispatchers are, we call them the first of the first responders. They're the ones who have to hear so many things that nobody should have to hear. And it's difficult. And when you hear somebody on the phone one moment saying, hey, can you help me? My kitty cat's up in a tree and I can't get him to come down. And the next thing you hear something like the mall shooting. Um, that's a very difficult. And then switch right back to somebody else with a kitty cat in the tree. You know. Yeah. So uh, for me, part of, my, uh, part of what my assignment was that night was to go take care of the dispatchers in the ensuing days uh, and uh, a week or so at least um, I went under the role of disaster relief uh, called in by the Red Cross to assist with uh, shoppers that uh, were still in the area looking for comfort there was the vigil uh, well that I attended and just to be there to see you know how many people are holding things in uh, how many people just need somebody to maybe put a uh, a, a, a hand on their shoulder or maybe an arm around their around their shoulder uh, maybe hand them a, a Kleenex simple things like that oftentimes but are big meaningful. in the moment they are they can be big to that person it's such a simple thing to do uh, just it's one way of saying hey somebody here cares about you and if they want to open up and talk then we're there for that so I did that in that role um, for a week or so after that uh, and spend a lot of time with some of the employees in that next, especially in that next week, week and a half or so, uh, just checking to see how are you doing after that. By the way, asking somebody how you're doing, you're never going to get the answer of how they're doing. There's other ways that we try to get that kind of, uh, we're not even really looking for information so much as we're looking for an opportunity for them to express uh, about their feelings and to, to help them process so in a mass crisis like that, are you wearing a jacket that says chaplain on the back so people know that you're someone who can be approached if they need something? Yeah, frequently that's exactly what we do. One of them uh, was almost an embarrassing looking vest uh, because it was, uh, it, uh, it was, it was funny looking. It was it's very bright. It's very easy to see. And that's the idea. It says, says chaplain in big letters across the back. Uh, but it was a very bright uh, color, and uh, but it did what we needed it to do. So if somebody wanted to come talk to a chaplain, they knew. We call it a chaplaincy, the presence, the presence, the ministry of presence, just being there. And uh, that's what we do with the trauma intervention program as well. Just be there for people. And when they're ready to talk, if they know you're available there uh, and you're just a compassionate person there for them, they, they usually make the first uh they take the first step oftentimes. Because I think, too, I think what I'm hearing from you as well is your job isn't always to be there and start a prayer vigil or always <laughs> be there to start talking about God. You're, again, you're there, you're being, you may be behind the scenes you're praying or you're... Yeah, you know what? I'm glad you said that because when you asked about the things about uh, uh, people's faith, one of the things that uh, uh, that I do there is pray. I'm always praying. When I go to a scene, I'm I'm asking the Lord, give me the... Uh, give me the wisdom to not do something stupid. Usually it's a pretty simple prayer like that. It's a good one. <laughs> Sometimes We should all pray that one. <laughs> right? I have to pray that a lot. So, uh, Lord, help me to be uh, helpful to people and help me to be glorifying to you. Uh, so, um, so definitely praying quietly. It's almost never about starting a prayer vigil or a vigil of some kind. It's almost never about being the one that says, hey, everybody, let's get a bunch of candles and show up somewhere. That happens spontaneously within the impacted crowd. Almost every time there's been something big, whether it's a school shooting, uh, also a mudslide, 
uh, a uh, shooting at the mall, something large like that, people want to come together, and they tend to do it with candles, with some music sometimes, with a lot of just uh, silent weeping, uh, and with prayer, uh, and a lot of hugs. So I like to be at those places, to be there available for people, but I never initiate those. The same with prayer. It's a very rare, very rare time when I will initiate a prayer when I'm with somebody. Um, in fact, it's a very rare time when I pray out loud with people. There have been times and there will be times when people ask me to pray with them. Just uh, less than a week ago, I was with the family who uh, the father passed away, family gathered, and uh, they said, let's gather around to pray. It was an uncomfortable moment. There was some family tension that was going on there. And so um, they were going to pray. I knew enough about their background to knew that, uh, know that uh, one particular person went to uh, a particular kind of church, and I knew that was, I was comfortable with their traditions. And so it wasn't moving. I said, can I lead you in a prayer? So that was a rare opportunity for me to do that. I keep those prayers simple. I don't mumble and ramble on like I am tonight. <laughs> I usually make those about two or three sentences because the purpose of the prayer is to ask God's blessing. It's not really to teach them anything. I'm not praying to them. I'm not telling them uh, that God is going to be with them. I'm asking God to be with them. And you keep it short, simple. And um, so that happens from time to time. That's pretty rare. Kenton, when that unfortunate reality of a firefighter death occurs, mm -hmm. can you walk us through your role as possibly the person handling the death notification as well as support, maybe the consolation of the firefighter's family and the community, and maybe the differences too. I understand there's the line of duty death, and then there's maybe the retired person, maybe yeah. someone who just dies doing the job and mm -hmm. not line of duty. So kind of give us all of that, will you? Sure, I'll, I'll try to. Uh... And I don't want to get uh, bogged down in, in some of the weeds. So for one thing, I'll say the policies and procedures for that do differ from agency to agency. And some of them can be uh, pretty different. Oh, as an example, um, I and two of my friends were asked to, uh, to go to a wildfire in Washington State a few years ago where we lost a few firefighters uh, in, a, in a horrific thing. And several were injured as well. My role there... Uh, as a chaplain was for the firefighters who were, you know, still still there. We couldn't do much with them when they're operational. If somebody's actually got one foot in the black and the other foot uh, is, mm. is in the burn area, you know, and they're putting out the fire, that's not the time to go up and put my arm around them and say, hey, buddy, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> that's not the time. But they all come back to fire camp, and they do have those... Uh, uh, they have those down moments where they need to process the pain and the anguish, the anger that they're going through about what happened, all the normal things that happen uh, when somebody's been through something horrific like that. So in that role, uh, uh, I and the other two chaplains, um, in fact, it's interesting now to think about it. I just talked to one of those other chaplains tonight on the way here, unrelated to that incident. <laughs> but um, we... we uh, uh, we showed up there to be present and to help leadership in some ways think through some planning of how they can take care of their firefighters as well. There were lots of firefighters at this particular fire. So some things were as simple as trying to help them uh, towards the ceremony that would happen uh, more than a week later. Um, and some of them had to do with how do you take care of these psychological, emotional, mental health, and spiritual issues that are going on for many of the firefighters while they're still operational. So 
that wildland firefighter situation would be very different from if something happened with my firefighters here in Clackamas. Uh, and, and their policies and procedures are going to be very different. That was a, those were line-of-duty deaths, which are very special, unique things that are done when the firefighter dies because of what they're doing as a firefighter. As you said, there's a retirement, uh, uh, retired firefighters who may die of natural cause uh, or they may die of cancer, and it might be some places in the United States are saying that cancer was because that firefighter was a firefighter for 25 years, 30 years, and was exposed to things that now our firefighters aren't going to be as exposed to. And there have been cases where those are called line-of-duty deaths. It's kind of a strange, kind of not, I shouldn't say strange, but it, it's a unique situation. Um, Do they find that out later after a death certificate's fi- signed, or how does that really come about? You know, on on, on those particular ones, I, I don't know how to speak to the, the particular case. That would be my assumption, is that if they say it was cancer and they know it's related to a firefighter who started in 1972 and they would go to the fires without wearing a mask at all you know it's it's kind of you put two and two together and I'm sure the medical examiner would be able to answer that better than I could so um, so how do we deal with that it, it sometimes it's as simple as helping them walk through a ceremony Sometimes it's more of you sit on the tail of a of an engine and you're talking with the firefighters after something has happened and and you get a feel for how they're doing and maybe give them some simple tools. Maybe it's letting them know that the that the uh, uh, reactions they're having to this trauma are normal. Maybe somebody's saying, you know, I feel so upset to my stomach and I don't know why. I've eaten normally today, and, I, and you say, well, you know, that's a pretty normal thing after what you've gone through. Headaches. Uh, it could be something, it could be blurred vision, it could be physical things, or it might just be, you know, I can't get this this little kid out of my mind It's something horrific they were at. So I know that's not a firefighter death, but it's those kind of things where you got to go, together. how do you get yeah. those reactions and normalize things for people? How would you walk us through just some of the particulars for somebody who hasn't attended a funeral procession for someone who died, either in, again, the line Mm-hmm. during the work, retired to somebody. Um, I know that all are a little bit more, they're different, even the ones oh, I yeah. as a mortician have attended. So yeah. just give us maybe a little story of one. So uh, it, a line of duty death is going to be a very uh, a very formal uh, and a very heartbreaking thing to go to. Uh, funerals can be heartbreaking anyway, but we bring out the best memories that we can about what Firefighter Joe did, what he was like. Uh, you're going to see a lot of pictures, as you do in a lot of memorials, right? But then you're also going to get, let's say for a police officer, for instance, uh, you may get the uh, the gunshots going that uh, you don't expect. You know, it's uh, like with a 21 gun salute. It's gonna and it's gonna throw you for a loop if you're not if you're not expecting loud noises like that to happen. It may be, and this always tugs at my heart, Elizabeth, the sound of a bagpipe anymore, I can't just enjoy it. <laughs> oh, Amazing Grace on the bagpipes It's always Amazing Grace, me. right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and and uh, my eyes are watering right now just thinking about it. Uh, my kids will tell you I cry too easy anyway, but uh, the sound of a bagpipe playing Amazing Grace to me is not just this wonderful story about how great God's grace is to me. When I hear that on a bagpipe, I'm thinking about memorial services I've been to for firefighters. There are things that are kind of geared almost to emotionally just wrench you. And and they're, they're good things. They help us express our grief and get some of that grief out. But if you haven't been to a line of duty death 
memorial service uh, and you have the opportunity to go because you want to help first responders, go to one or just YouTube and watch one so you have an idea of the kind of things that happen. When you see 50 or 80 pieces of fire apparatus go down the street, uh, when you see, <laughs> sorry, it's doing it. <laughs> when you see uh, firefighters and cops lined up across the street and saluting without moving, uh, giving their best honor to somebody, it's a, it is a thing that uh, will, will put a lump in your throat. So if you think you're going to be doing something like that, Watch some watch some videos. Go to one of somebody you don't know, somebody you're not involved with, uh, to to get a feel for that before you have to be at one. I already know you're a special human just from working with you locally in the county and seeing you around. But there's something that I found on the internet that you wrote, and uh -oh. I, I want to share it because <laughs> it just it just speaks to who you are. Seeking to help first responders, victims, and survivors find their God-given strength to get through the darkest valleys in their lives and to enjoy the mountaintop experiences even more. That's lovely. Lovely. Uh, thank you. You did do your research. I'm trying I, to We can't let anybody that. in the studio. Even if you're a man of God and the cloth, we've got to check you out. <laughs> well, I think that kind of sums up what I, what I enjoy about my, my ministry of chaplaincy. How, when people, do people reject you at all in the field when they see yeah. a chaplain with a jacket and think, oh boy, here's this guy to tell me about Jesus? That's a good, that's a really great question. I, I would say uh, that can happen. It's pretty stinking rare. Uh, I think we as Christians tend to think sometimes, in fact, we're, we're maybe afraid to talk to people about our faith because we assume there's going to be rejection there. I have found that is just just something that's so rare uh, that happens. However, yeah, it can happen, and it occasionally does happen. Uh, when that happens, I say bow out graciously. You know, it's about if it's somebody that you're there to take care of. And they and I had that. I remember what happened. That happened one time when a guy said, "I don't want you here," and um, uh, I had to bow out graciously because it's about them. It's not about me. It's not me being able to say, "Hey, there's another feather to put in my hat." Somebody I saved from uh, being sad. That's not that. It's about them. If I mess their world up more by being there and making them angry. While they're processing it, I've done 180 degrees of what I meant to do. So, and then you got to remember too, you know, in the book of John, uh, Jesus says, "If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And He said uh, over in chapter 16, He said, "In this world you will have tribulation, uh, but I have overcome." So I got to remember, if I get rejected because people make assumptions about me, about Jesus, or about religion in general. Um, I'm okay with that. They rejected him and they put him on the cross for it. And nobody's doing that to me. So I have a feeling they don't reject you much during the season of Christmas. Can you tell us a little bit about your Christmas alter ego or is that under wraps? <laughs> that might be another, that might be time for another the Christmas. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Operation Christmas is an incredible thing we get to do with Clackamas Fire District. And uh, we serve hundreds and hundreds of families each year with, through that. It's a, it's a blessing to be a part of that. And who gets to ride the truck and be Santa? <laughs> I get to do that on occasion. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that out loud or not. <laughs> it's the secret and the joys of Christmas. That's Very right. nice. <laughs> You've been listening to KKPZ, 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you to my guest, Chaplain Canton Johnson, as well as Santa sometimes. Until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other. 